Told you I was going to walk up to it from now on. So, uh, good morning, everybody. We doing all right? You guys are all spread out. It's summertime, and uh, maybe it's because you stink. That you guys, I don't want to. I don't want to sit next to somebody. I'm sweating. It's hot out. Everybody doing okay? All right. We're in uh, week four of our classroom series. Uh, we're covering 17 books. There's uh, recently there's a listing of uh, um, of famous movie quotes, like a, a list of famous movie quotes that came out, and uh, I, I thought it'd be fun if we just you know see, could see if we could identify the movies uh, with the quote. I you know I'll give you a few of them, but we're going to eliminate some of the obvious ones like you know E.T. phone home. Obviously that's E.T. right? Uh, I am Spartacus. Kind of know what that is. Yeah, Spartacus, right? Uh, those are all uh, pretty easy. And to be on the safe side this morning, we're going to eliminate anything that starts off with yippee right? We won't. We'll just get rid of that one. Uh, we'll also admit uh, any of the ridiculous easy ones, like life is like a box of chocolate. May the force be with you. You're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, those ones. But So we'll start off with some easy ones. Uh, you ready? Here, here we go. Uh, see if you can get this. Uh, a martini shaken, not stirred. James Bond. Oh, very good. Uh, my name is uh, Maximus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions. See, yeah, I didn't even have to finish it. Good job. You guys all uh, watch too many movies. Uh, here's looking at you, kid. Casablanca. Yeah, some of the older people know that. How about uh, nobody puts baby in a corner? Yeah, some of you are going to hell. Um, how about say hello to my little friend? Okay. Uh, this is uh, one of mine and Kelly's favorite movies. Uh, you had me at hello. Uh, one of my favorite uh, movies of all time, Get Busy Living or Get Busy Dying. Ooh. Nope. Shawshank Redemption. Somebody got it. It's the Shawshank Redemption. They play it like all the time on TBS and T or one of those stations. It's like nonstop looping through that. And it's the appropriate version to watch. So you, if you haven't seen the Shawshank Redemption, you really ought to. I think. Yeah, never mind. I, uh, you shouldn't watch it. It's probably got something bad in it that I don't remember. So, Well, if the Bible were a movie, what would be among its most famous quote, uh, memorable quotes? Uh, what would be the most memorable sections of the Bible? Uh, as I said, we're in this series through the Bible in seven weeks. Uh, we're, we're taking a 33,000-foot view of all 66 books of the Bible, and the goal for us is to really just introduce it to you, uh, introduce the highlights and the key components and 
uh, and give you an overview and an understanding with the hope that it will actually whet your appetite a little bit and, and inspire you to read it yourself, to, to dig into the scriptures and uh, to read more about it. Uh, if Jaws is about needing a bigger boat, which I think some of you didn't know that one, uh, and E.T. about phoning home, then really what is the Bible about? And that's what we're, we're finding out. And the whole goal is to just really dig into it and, and see what, uh, what Scripture is about. Uh, we've covered so far the first 22 books of, of the 66, and today we're going to cover the next 17. No problem, Right. Uh, These 17 books actually close out the Old Testament portion of the Bible. The Bible's divided into the New Testament portion and the Old Testament portion. And in between the New and the Old Testament is a period of 400 years. Uh, We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But there are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And today we're going to cover, as I said, the, the last 17 books in the Old Testament. These 17 books are known as the prophetic books. Uh, or the prophetic writings. Uh, They start with Isaiah, they end with Malachi, and as this has kind of been more of a classroom series, let's say classes in session, and we're going to jump into it and see if we can get through all of this and unpack all of this. If you came this morning, as Jeremy was talking about um, weary and needing rest, Uh, you're welcome. The 17 books we're going to be going through, you might find your rest this morning. Here we go. No, you're not going to fall asleep, right? Nobody's falling asleep. Today's Mark Derezio in here this morning. No, nobody's going to fall asleep today. (laughs) It's true. You know it's true. Here we go. Logan's like, that's my grandfather. Stop it. Let's review. Let's go all the way back to the great Jewish leader of Moses. Because in order for us to understand the prophet books, to understand really why we have the prophets, we have to understand the context by which they came about. So we're going to go all the way back. you got Moses who leads the people out of Egypt, right? He hands over the leadership baton to a guy named Joshua. He, they go into the promised land and they possess the land where they're ruled by various judges until the time of their appointed first king. By the man, uh, a man by the name of Saul. Uh, Saul was the first king. He was followed then by one of the greatest leaders of all time, uh, King David. In fact, one of the greatest leaders in all of human history, honestly. Uh, a guy named King David. David started off uh, by winning a battle with Goliath and then ended up establishing Israel in that area as the premier force uh, in the world. David had a son named Solomon, a man who made his own mark, as we talked about last week, through his incredible God-given wisdom. In fact, he was known as the wisest man to have ever lived. The reigns of David and then Solomon constituted what can only be known as the golden era of Israel. Then when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam came to the throne. He was the fourth king In Israel's history. And he'd been given this perfect setup. It's like everything has been given to you. All you have to do is just rule justly, uh, rule in a fair way. And then in one single event, he screwed the entire thing up and everything was lost. The people came to install him as king and they invited him to, as they move forward, to do something great, to inaugurate his reign with an act of kindness. 
of compassion and, and sensitivity and consider lowering, lowering their taxes and to uh, reduce the amount of forced labor just a little bit, right? Just, just for a season to just kind of lower some of those things. And it was this incredible opportunity for him to gain favor with the people, and he refused. In fact, his response was to say, oh, you want lower taxes? Oh, you want less work? Well, I'm going to raise your taxes, and I'm actually going to increase the amount of work that you do. And a lot of the people just said, no, I'm I'm not having any of it. And so 10 of those 12 tribes leave. They take off and they split the kingdom into two different kingdoms, the one in the north, the ten tribes in the north, and the two tribes that would stay loyal to Rehoboam in the south, forming the southern kingdom of Judah, which led to increasing political, cultural, and spiritual breakdown in both the north and the south. And what that did was usher in the prophetic era where God would send prophets to the kingdoms, trying to implore these people to come back to political, cultural, and spiritual sanity. Unfortunately, the breakdown was so pandemic that by by and large, the, the words of the prophets fell on deaf ears. People didn't listen to them, which then led to these prophetic calls of Uh, becoming now to be prophetic declarations of doom, destruction. And a 350-year decline was set in motion, culminating in the exile of the northern kingdom to, to Assyria and the exile of the southern kingdom to a place called Babylon in uh, northern in 722 B.C., Babylon in 586 B.C., with the temple and the holy city of Jerusalem left captured. The northern kingdom ended up being lost forever, and only a remnant then of the southern kingdom actually were able to come back from their exile to the promised land, to reestablish the Jewish homeland and wait for the Messiah there. And that, in effect, is the Old Testament. That is the, the history, the story of the entire Old Testament right there in a nutshell. The story of the Bible doesn't pick up again until the return, of, or until the coming of the Messiah, Uh, in the New Testament. And it ends with Malachi, and then it begins with the return of Jesus in the New Testament, or the, the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. So that's the setting, that's the season we're in with the prophets. You've got a divided kingdom, you've got exile looming, like they're gonna get exiled out of their country, and, and now he sends these prophets for repentance and to, for this declaration of judgment. It really wasn't a fun time in history. So with that history out of the way, uh, what do exactly do we mean when we say prophets? When someone was a prophet, we tend to think of a prophet as somebody who uh, puts it on their business card or stands on a stage and shakes their leg while they're saying, thus says the Lord, and, and they're kind of this self-proclaimed person, but Sometimes we, when we think of prophets, we think of people who are only predicting the future uh, as if they're some sort of fortune teller in some, you know, but spiritual fortune teller. That's not, some of them did that, but that's not really the meaning of the word. A prophet was someone who was a mouthpiece for God. And this is in your notes, a mouthpiece for God to speak to the people. 
Their job was more about bringing the word of God to light on human, on human life and, and to proclaim to them the will of God in light of their particular situation. They're in dire straits. And God is speaking to them through these prophets. Most of the time they were bearers of warning and judgment. They were sent by God because the people wouldn't listen to God in any other way. And so God spoke to the prophets through all different kinds of ways. There was uh, dreams and visions and signs and symbols. And God would speak to them through all of these different ways. And then they would communicate that through their writings and through their spoken word to the people. Sometimes you see their writings prefaced with the statement that what they're about to say or proclaim or what they're about to write is an oracle which meant that God was going to share something from the heart through the prophet to the people. But no matter how the message of God came to them, it was God's message. It was his word. It was binding. It was authoritative. It, and, and listen, when I say this, none of them were self-proclaimed, right? None of these prophets were like self-proclaimed prophets. God appointed them. And he, he set them apart for this unique opportunity, for this unique task, which is why you also read of false prophets. Those are the guys who self-appoint and prophesy their own words, but not God's. A true prophet was God's spoken person, which is why throughout the prophetic writings, as we're about to read, uh, you, you find God putting things in their mouth, God setting them apart, God telling them what to say, which is why only the prophet, the true appointed prophet, could say, thus says the Lord. In their message, it tended to be three parts. First, that if the people didn't repent, that they would be taken captive, that they would be exiled, or that they would see destruction. Second, that the Messiah was coming. That there would be a day in which the Messiah was coming. And finally, that when the Messiah comes, the people of God would be restored. They would be brought together and they, they would be renewed. Of course, all three happened. The people didn't repent, so they went into exile, right? And Jesus did, the Messiah did come in Jesus, and Jesus did provide a way for people who wanted to be connected to God to come together and be saved. But most of what you read in here is pretty direct moral confrontation. So 17 books in the Old Testament put under the banner of two major or two categories. There's the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets, listen, this isn't about whether one's better than the other. It's just that they're longer, right? So it's the length of the book. Uh, in the case of Obadiah, you've got 21 verses, right? Minor prophet. He is, that book is a minor prophet because it's 21 verses. But then you've got Jeremiah, who's considered a major prophet because his book is lengthy, as well as he also writes the book Lamentations. So it has nothing to do with better or worse, just the, the length of the book. Another thing to note before we actually dive into the books is that many of these prophets overlap with one another. Right? They lived at the same time, even in the same area with each other. And after the last of the prophets, after Malachi, there is, as I said earlier, this 400-year gap that takes place, that you don't have another prophet that comes into Israel until John the Baptist comes proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. 
With all of that in mind, I think we can quickly walk through the writings themselves, beginning with Isaiah. So, uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah was really the, the greatest statement, statesman of his day. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom, right? The two tribes that were in the south, Judah, to those two tribes. And he stayed loyal to Rehoboam. His appointment as a prophet is found in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, uh, where it's a, it's a famous passage where Isaiah encounters God encircled by angels and chant, uh, chanting, holy, holy, holy. And God's saying, who will I send? And Isaiah saying, send me. And during his time as a prophet, the ten tribes that were up in the north, that were a part of the northern kingdom, end up getting destroyed. So Isaiah's down here in the south. He's prophesying to these guys. These guys are getting destroyed up in the north. And throughout Isaiah, what you find is some of the key messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, when you read Isaiah, it almost feels like you're reading a Christmas book because many of the, the stories and the scriptures that we use at Christmas time come from the sayings of Isaiah. I'll give you an example. In chapter 7, we read these words of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Scripture verses, or Christmas scripture verses that we read came from the book of Isaiah. Now, Jeremiah and Lamentations are very different from Isaiah. Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. Jeremiah didn't say that. He said, hey, God, send anyone but me. Like, I don't want to go. And God said, sucks to be you. You're going to do it. Right? I mean, obviously a little bit of a paraphrase there. But right, he, he was called out against his desires to be a prophet. And he was called when he was a young man, or at least young enough to confess an absence of experience or, uh, or maturity. But God assured him that he would be given the words to speak and that the guidance needed would be there for the journey. It's uh, maybe one of the most familiar passages of scripture that we have from Jeremiah is the one that you see on posters and they're like, it's biblical motivation, right? It's, uh, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, Jeremiah 29, 11. So it, he's, he's really questioning his calling and God is encouraging him and saying, no, you, you can do this. But Jeremiah had a difficult go. He served during one of the most tumultuous times in all of Israel's history. Eventually, it led to the nation's destruction of, and their captivity. His era was 60 years after the death of Isaiah, but other prophets were alive during his lifetime, like Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. All of those guys were contemporaries. They were all a part, uh, they were all alive during his time. So through a succession of kings and conquests, and invasions, and all of this happening, Jeremiah faithfully proclaimed the word of God. But he suffered greatly for it. He was prof probably the prophet who suffered the most because the people didn't like what he had to say. He was ridiculed for prophecies that didn't happen in a timely manner according to the people. 
The wicked he spoke out against seemed to prosper and the antagonists that were against him continued to flourish. And so it seemed like he didn't know what he was talking about. He became the objectivity or the object of hostility and scorn, particularly in his hometown. It's uh, where we get the passage of scripture that a prophet isn't welcome in his hometown, right? That he was beaten, he was arrested. In fact, uh, most of history, tradition holds that in the end, he was stoned by his, his Jewish friends. Well, I'm not sure you call them friends, but his fellow Jews, right? They didn't like what he had to say. His life was tough, and it's why we have the book Lamentations. It's the book of Lament. It's Jeremiah lamenting over the fact that no one will listen to him. No one will hear the word of God. So he's called to be a prophet by God at this early age because we know, we know more about Jeremiah than any of the other prophets, right? He was a priest at birth. He pleaded with God not to do it, that he was young, that he was inexperienced. And maybe that's why, that, that's probably why God had him prophesy in so many other ways that didn't involve speaking. So there's these crazy stories in scripture where he, he wears this girdle, this rotten girdle, right? It's disgusting. He, he puts a, a yoke on his neck. He breaks a bottle uh, in front of a ruler. He, he goes and he buys a field and he buries in the field a deed to the field. So he, 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 like, he functioned in all of these analogies and illustrations and maybe it was because he wasn't really great at speaking, but all of those things were symbolic messages that God wanted him to send. So Jeremiah prophesied to the southern kingdom before the exile and during its captivity, and he saw the reign of five different kings come and go. Which brings us to Ezekiel. Jeremiah was the last of the prophets in Jerusalem before the exile. Ezekiel was the prophet that God raised up for the people during the exile in Babylon. So essentially, God used Ezekiel to remind the people what got them there in the first place, that they're in this mess, and Ezekiel comes and reminds them why they're in this mess. Uh, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel was a prophet and a priest. He, he, he lived at the same time as Daniel and Jeremiah. So here's the setting. While Jeremiah is left back in, Israel, in Jerusalem, Ezekiel was a part of the thousands of exiles that went to Babylon. Uh, to, to live in this uh, concentration camp. Uh, think of him as the prophet to Auschwitz or something along those lines, right? That, that, that he went with them to the concentration camp while Jeremiah was back in Jerusalem. And, and a few, like Daniel, uh, they would reach these high, high uh, stations in Babylon, these high positions in Babylon life. But most did not. And because most did not, Ezekiel was their prophet. And he was needed because instead of captivity turning them to God, they just turned further away. Ezekiel is a challenging read because he communicates most of his messages through uh, symbols and visions and parables and poems uh, and, and then some direct prophecies. It's just it's a, a fascinating read, but, but really challenging to read through it. One of his most uh, more famous sayings is, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone 
and give you a heart of flesh. His point, though, is clear, right? You are in captivity because of your sin. And if you want to return to your land, you're going to have to return to the Lord. Which brings us to Daniel. Daniel is this fascinating book that holds some of the most well-known stories of all of Scripture. You've got stories like a fiery furnace where guys aren't being burned up. You've got a lion's den where he's not eaten up. Uh, you've got a story of a, uh, a hand that manifests and writes on a wall, right? It writes a message on a wall. You've got all of these amazing stories. It's also a book that holds one of the most riveting prophetic materials in the Bible, probably rivaled only by uh, the book of Revelation, which we'll end with in this series, uh, as far as end times go. What's intriguing about uh, the book of Daniel really has kind of developed in recent years in our culture uh, because it's used as this, as this example, this kind of a, a primer, if you will, to, to, to live in a predominantly secular, irreligious world that has entered into a post-Christian era. So it gives us this clear picture of how to do that. You've got the story of him and, and his friends, these group of men that lived in an environment that was hostile towards Christians. And, and so they uh, figured out a way in which to live their life staying true to who they were in God, but also living in the midst of, of that world. That's the first half of Daniel. The second half of Daniel is crazy, right? It's weird. It gets into like future prophecies through a vision and Daniel experiences this vision and then he, he writes it down. I'll let you read the craziness of that. Uh, brings us to the minor prophets and these we can just, we, we can fly through these suckers. Uh, it begins with Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Hosea was sent to the 10 northern tribes, right? So we've been talking about some of the prophets in the, in the southern tribe. He was sent to the northern tribes, the 10 tribes up north. And his contemporaries, some of the guys that were alive during his time were Amos, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, and Micah. Hosea is interesting because this is what God calls Hosea to do to live out his prophecy to the people. He asks him to marry this, this harlot, I don't know how else to say it, uh, and be faithful to her no matter what, and to pursue her no matter how unfaithful she is to him. And the reason why God did this was uh, for Hosea's life to serve as a reflection of God's unending love. That, that his love for his people is there despite how unfaithful or how much they rejected him. He uses uh, Hosea and his wife Gomer as a, a picture of his redeeming love and grace. Joel is considered by many to be the oldest of the prophetic books. He probably knew Elijah and Elisha in his youth. He's been called the prophet of revival and renewal because that's what he called for so often. In fact, it was the writing of Joel that was quoted by Peter uh, in Acts when, uh, at, at Pentecost, right? The great event at Pentecost when Peter preaches a message and 3,000 people get saved, he ends up quoting Joel and, and, and ends up becoming the, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Amos uh, was a sheep herder. As a boy, he would have known Jonah, 
uh, and Elisha. He worked with Hosea. And just as Amos was finishing his run, Isaiah and Micah would have appeared onto the scene. As interesting, uh, an interesting thing about Amos is that it's been said that he feared God so much that he didn't fear anyone or anything else, which really made him the prophet of prophets. He, he was the, the man among boys when it came to prophets because he was so bold and he was so courageous because he feared nothing except for God. Next comes Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. Obadiah is the shortest book, as I told you, of the Old Testament. It contains 21 verses. If you're struggling to read through Scripture as we go into 21 days of prayer, one Scripture per day, you can do it, right? Just read the book of Obadiah, uh, one Scripture every day. You'll get through the entire book. Uh, Jonah is also short. It's four chapters, but it's gotten a lot of press, not because... Uh, for what you think it's gotten a lot of press for, not because of him being swallowed by a giant fish, but because it's this beautiful picture of God's incredible heart for the lost. Uh, These lost people in this town called Nineveh, God sends Jonah as a prophet to go and speak to them. And like Hosea and his wife Gomer, here we're given this glimpse into the heart of God for all people. A heart of compassion, a heart. We sing that song, uh, Reckless Love. It's almost this reckless love to get to these people. Micah was a country guy. He was a prophet at the same time as Isaiah. But Isaiah was in the city. He's prophesying to uh, the intellectual and the elite, the educated, all of the, the wealthy people in the city. Micah was out in the country, right? He was in the south. No, I'm just kidding. He wasn't in the south. He was out in the country, Right to the simple folk. But like Isaiah, he was focused on the coming Messiah, the one that would, would come. And many of his prophecies are actually known to us this day. He's the one that prophesied, uh, or his prophecy was the thing that directed the Magi to the star, to, to follow the star to Bethlehem. Um, I'll give you the, the passage of scripture from Micah 5 2. But you, Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Of course, Micah is also well known for one of the most telling statements about authentic faith. I thought it, there's no way I could talk about Micah and not share this passage of scripture with you. It's from Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? He's talking to a group of people, remember, who have been doing sacrifices. They've been bringing offerings to the Lord all of this time. And this is his prophetic word. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn, making reference all the way back to Egypt, right? Uh, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of, of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And this is what he's telling these people who have for all of their life had been doing sacrifices and putting out offerings and all of this. He says, what does the Lord require of you? Three things, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Next come Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Nahum is interesting because this is the tragic footnote to the book of Jonah. 
right? 150 years after Nineveh had turned to God, they had now turned away from God again. Only this time, when Nahum comes to them, they don't turn to God and Nineveh is then destroyed. Nahum is followed then by Habakkuk, which is interesting writing and really one of the coolest Old Testament books because Habakkuk stands apart from all of the other prophetic writings. This is how it's different. In all of the other prophetic writings, you have the prophets declaring God's word to the people. Habakkuk actually takes the people's questions and words to God. And he asks God the questions that the people have. Uh, why us? Why now? Why this? You know, why, why all of these things? And then he gets the answers from God, and then he goes back to the people with the answers. He brought all of these people's questions to God and then, and then brings them back the answer. Habakkuk has been considered throughout history as one of the, the most pivotal books of the Old Testament. In fact, one verse from Habakkuk is quoted three separate times in the New Testament, in Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews. Here's the, here's the quote. It's from Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by his faith. This is, again, another mind-blowing, huge idea to these people. Because it's all about being saved by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. So all of the things they've been doing, all of the hoops they've been jumping through, no, no, what he's saying is the righteous will actually live by his faith. Following Habakkuk is Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a fun read because he was the prophet that prophesied during one of the only good kings, King Josiah, right? He was a godly man and uh, as he's prophesying to them, he, what, what he, the reason why he's cool and a little bit different is because the people actually listened to him. It didn't, his words didn't fall on deaf ears. The final three books are also the final three of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These three were the prophets after the return from exile. So they're in Babylon and they make their way back to Israel, and Haggai brought God's message to the people to rebuild the temple. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we put pictures, or at least attempted to put pictures of the temples up, right? Uh, and so Haggai brought God's message to rebuild the temple. Zechariah cast a vision for the future, encouraging people to what could be if they would turn to God mostly through a series of visions that he would give to them. And then Malachi closes it out as almost a mini-summary of the entire Old Testament. And it serves as this bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Malachi would, would be the last prophet to speak to Israel in her own land. Malachi is, is written in kind of this unique way. It's a series of declarations or dialogues between God and the people. And God makes a declaration to the people and they respond to it. And then he responds back. God's very, very candid in this. Malachi is, this, is unique in that it contains the final closing words of God before the coming of Jesus. After speaking through the prophet Malachi, God would be silent for 400 years. 
And what God said to Malachi was that it is what he wanted them to end on. These were the words he wanted ringing in their ears before the coming of the Messiah. Malachi was the final preparation before, come, uh, before coming to earth himself in the form of a human being in the person of Jesus. And interestingly, the most pressing matter was their level of generosity or their lack of it in this case. Because for God, that was a clear indicator of the heart. And what mattered most to God was the heart, not necessarily the works. So there you have it, 17 books, and I'm even done earlier than I thought I was going to be. That was a, a lot of information thrown at you. Yeah, and it's the only time I get an amen, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> next week, next week we begin in the New Testament. It's where we'll begin the story of Jesus. I think it's important for me, since I have the time, uh, to remind you that the Old Testament is important. It's important. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of history. It's a lot of biblical history. But as I said early on, there is this thread that's leading to the moment in which the Messiah comes back or comes, not comes back, that the Messiah comes. That, that it leads to this moment in history where Jesus comes to bring salvation to the world, to redeem his people. It is all of this that leads to this, and this is one of the most important events in human history. And we're going to talk about that next week as we get into the Gospels. Let's pray.